Good morning, friends. Uh, today's message I've titled Jolly Up in a Grumpy World. And it comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. This morning we're going to begin a tour through the book of Philippians. By all accounts, this is one of the most beloved books in the New Testament. We love to read Philippians, we love to study it and to memorize it. There are many reasons for this, not the least of which is that this is the happiest letter the Apostle Paul ever wrote. Now, sometimes Paul was not in a lighthearted mood when he wrote his letters, especially when he had to correct serious error in the churches. Uh, Galatians comes to mind, and so does Colossians and Second Thessalonians. But Paul's mood was obviously on the upside when he wrote this brief letter. Now, I'm excited about teaching through Philippians for the next number of weeks for three reasons. First, although the letter is short, it covers almost every Christian doctrine. As we work through these four chapters in the next weeks, we'll be introduced to many great doctrines, including the person and work of Jesus, justification by faith, the second coming, and many aspects of sanctification. And second, this book also shows the relational side of the Christian faith. Here we learn how Paul dealt with opponents, both inside and outside the church. We also discover how to deal with cantankerous Christians and the importance of unity in the body. And third, a study of Philippians teaches us how to find joy during personal pain. This is perhaps the place where truth touches life at its rawest point. This is truly a mystery, both personal and theological. Unfortunately, we live in a world where tragedies are somewhat commonplace. I do not think that Philippians offers us a final answer to the mystery of suffering, but it does point the way to a genuinely Christian response. As we read these four chapters, Paul tells us in many ways that while we can't control what happens to us, we do have control regarding how we respond. Tragedy strikes, children die, planes crash, good men go to jail, people gossip, marriages break up, and people lie about their behavior. There's nothing to be done about all this because it's an ongoing consequence of living in a fallen world. But we do have a choice regarding how we respond to the hurts and the heartaches of life. And that's the primary contribution of this wonderful book that blessed the people of God, you know, 2,000 years ago. But first, a little bit of background. Before we jump into the book, let's just get a little uh, uh, background in front of us. And keep these two key dates in mind, A.D. 51 and 61. The first date, A.D. 51, is the approximate year when Paul made his first visit to Philippi. You can read about that in Acts chapter 16. There he meets Lydia, the seller of purple by the riverside, and leads her to faith in Jesus. Then he casts a demon out of a young girl, and for this act of kindness is thrown into jail. Then he leads the jailer to Jesus and baptizes him and his family in the middle of the night. And soon after that, he leaves town and travels to Berea, Thessalonica, and Athens. From that inauspicious beginning, a great church was born. And since Paul had founded the church and since he had personally led the charter members to Jesus, they naturally looked to him with great reverence and love. And he, in turn, kept this church always in his heart. A bond was formed that would never be broken. Ten years later, that would be approximately 61, uh, Paul found himself in prison in Rome awaiting trial before Caesar. He was under a type of house arrest, which meant he was always watched by the Praetorian Guard, kind of a group of elite Roman soldiers, evidently chained to a guard. However, he wasn't in solitary confinement, which meant he could receive visitors and could even preach and teach while in prison. 
When the Philippian church heard about his imprisonment, they sent a much-loved leader named Epaphroditus to Rome with a money gift for Paul's personal needs. And while in Rome, Epaphroditus became sick and nearly died. And when word got back to the Philippians, they were naturally very concerned. Well, eventually, Epaphroditus returned to health, and Paul sent him back to Philippi, carrying a brief thank you note to the church. That brief note is the New Testament book we call Philippians. Its tone is spontaneous, warm, and personal. Paul uses the word joy and rejoice 14 times in 104 verses. One Bible commentator I looked at it calls it an intimate diary written by the great apostle of Christian faith. Second, let's take a glimpse into Paul's heart. The heart of the letter begins in verse 3 of chapter 1 with Paul's thanksgiving for the Philippians. In this paragraph, which runs through verse 8, gives us a glimpse into Paul's heart and shows why Paul loved this church so much. He wrote, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. See, Paul begins by expressing his gratitude for all that the Philippian believers meant to him. He remembered his friends and his memory led him to give thanks to God. And his thanksgiving led naturally to joyful prayer on their behalf. Paul chose to focus on the positive. I wonder how many of us would say the same thing about our own prayers. Often we focus only on the negatives. We pray to uh, correct something in other people or to ask God to change them more to our liking. You know, let me share some advice about the importance of keeping a positive focus when we pray. You know, Whenever you pray for someone, begin by thanking God for them. Thank God for the role they've played in your life, for all they've done for you, for the good things they've done for others. And even if you're having conflict with them, thank God that he or she is giving you the opportunity to grow spiritually, to learn more about forgiveness and to be more patient and stuff like that. If you try, you can find something to be thankful for in just about anyone. Thankful prayer can make the difference. Anyone can pray against another person. But only God can give you the grace to pray for them instead. Now, when asked how he dealt with his many enemies, uh, President Abraham Lincoln replied, If at all possible, I turn them into friends. Good advice. Now, note one final thing about Paul's thanksgiving for the Philippians. All of it was centered in the gospel. In verse 5, he mentions their partnership in the gospel. And the Greek word for partnership is koinonia, sometimes translated fellowship. Now, in our day, fellowship means something like a social gathering where we drink coffee and eat donuts and gossip. To most of us, fellowship means warm friendship with other believers. Now, it's true that drinking coffee and eating donuts has its place, but it doesn't begin to exhaust the New Testament meaning of fellowship. The word originally had commercial overtones. If two men bought a boat and started a fishing business, they were said to be in koinonia, a formal business partnership. They shared a common vision and invested together to see the vision become a reality. True Christian fellowship means sharing the same vision of getting the gospel to the world and then investing personally to make it happen. Thus, there are financial overtones in the word koinonia, as well as a call to a personal sacrifice. When Paul thanks God for the fellowship of the Philippians, he is thanking God that from the very first day of their conversion, they rolled up their sleeves and got involved in the advance of the gospel. True fellowship means putting the gospel first as the controlling motive of your life 
and then doing whatever it takes to spread the life-changing message to the ends of the earth. Let's take a look at the word confidence, verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Many people consider this one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible. Theologians often use it to defend the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Now, I don't particularly like that phrase, the perseverance of the saints, because it puts the emphasis in the wrong place. I prefer to say that I believe in the perseverance of God and the preservation of the saints. Philippians 1.6 teaches us that we will be reserved to the end because God will always persevere. What God starts, he always finishes. Now, note three things from this verse. First, God takes the initiative in starting his work in you. He is the one who begins a good work in us. Salvation always begins with God. He makes the first move, and if he didn't make that first move, we would make no move at all. Maybe you've heard the story of the country preacher who was being examined for his uh, ordination. When asked how he'd become a Christian, he replied, I did my part and God did his. Well, that sounded a little questionable, so the elders asked the pastor to explain uh, his part in salvation. He said, well, my part was to run away from God as fast as I could. God's part was to run after me and catch me and bring me into his family. You know, I kind of like that. It's a good biblical answer because all of us were born running from God, and unless God took the initiative to find us, we'd still be running away from him. A second, God takes personal responsibility for completing his work in you. And I find this a really comforting thought. God has a good work that he intends to use in your life and in mine. Nothing will block the accomplishment of that divine purpose. God intends that all of his children be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, and he will not rest until that good work is finally finished. Now, maybe you've seen t-shirts that say, please be patient, God isn't finished with me yet. Well, thank God that's true. I may not look like much, but God isn't finished with me yet. And when you look in the mirror and even deeper into your own soul, you may not like what you see, but no matter, God is not finished with you yet. Well, there's good news and bad news in this truth. The good news is that since God isn't finished, we have great hope for the future. The bad news is that since God isn't finished with us yet, he won't let us stay as we are today. He's going to keep chipping away at us until we are conformed to the image of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, most of us, and I include myself in this, have a long way to go, an enormous distance to travel, but it doesn't matter. I'd rather be six inches from hell heading toward heaven than six inches from heaven heading toward hell. Direction makes all the difference. If you find yourself uh, in the muck and the mire of personal defeat as you read these words and hear these words, be encouraged. Child of God, he's not finished with you. Rise and walk. I mean, God's not finished with you. If you've been sent to the bench for a personal foul, learn the lesson God has for you and get back in the game. Uh, God's not finished with you yet. Now, third, God guarantees the outcome of his work in you. Not only does God start the process and continue the process, he also guarantees its ultimate outcome. He will, as the verse says, carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This means that God won't be turned aside by difficulties of any kind. He is so determined to make you like Jesus that even your own backsliding won't ultimately hinder the accomplishment of his purpose. 
Someday you and I will stand before Jesus as redeemed children of God, holy, blameless, complete in every way. We're a far sight from that today, but a better day is coming for the people of God. What's incomplete will be made complete. What is unfinished will be finished. What is lacking will be made full. What's partial will be made whole. What is less than enough will be far more than adequate. What is broken will be fixed. What is hurt will be healed. What is weak will be made strong. What is temporary will be made permanent. God has promised to do it, and he cannot lie. Has God begun a good work in your life? Do you feel incomplete and unfinished? Well, don't worry. He'll complete his work in you. Let's look at another word here, and that's kind of affection. It's in verses 7 and 8. Paul writes, It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending or in confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how long, how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, Paul explains his affection this way. First of all, there's personal commitment. I have you in my heart. Then there's shared ministry. All of you share in God's grace with me. And third, divine testimony. God can testify how I long for all of you. Well, as I ponder these verses, the thought hits me that the world can counterfeit this, but it cannot duplicate it. This is why people go to bars hoping to meet that special someone. It's also why they join clubs and social organizations and why they serve in community improvement groups and why they go to chat rooms on the Internet. Men and women desperately want this kind of deep relationship, but they don't have a clue where to find it. The affection Paul had for the Philippians and they for him comes only through a shared relationship with Jesus. Those who know Jesus are joined in a spiritual bond that runs deeper than any human tie. And third, there is an invitation to real joy. And only two questions remain. First of all, how could Paul feel so joyful, so positive, and so optimistic? Well, one thing we know for sure, it wasn't because of his circumstances. He's in jail and chains on trial for his life, physically weak and under attack from fellow Christians who distrusted him now that he was behind bars. Surely, if anybody had a reason to be angry, it was Paul. Yet instead, he speaks of joy, thanksgiving, gratitude, confidence, and the deep affection he felt for the Philippian Christians. Although his circumstances were not ideal, he refused to let his circumstances dictate his emotions. By God's grace, he chose to rise above his circumstances. That leads us to a second question that comes to mind as I read these verses. Which is harder, to be in prison or out? Now, surely most of us would say it's harder to be in prison and easier to be out. That's a quick answer, but I don't know if it's the right one. The correct answer is, it depends. I know a lot of people behind bars who are truly free because they've discovered the life-changing power of a personal relationship with Jesus. And I know many people who are free in the sense that they aren't in jail. And yet the chains of bitterness and anger and lust and despair and greed and a host of all kinds of other sins enslave them on the inside. That leads me to a statement that might serve as a theme for this entire series. It's this. Joy does not depend on circumstances, but on a living relationship with Jesus, the Messiah. Friends, if you don't have joy right now, don't blame your circumstances. They were never meant to bring you joy in the first place. If you built your life on circumstances, you're going to be miserable at least as often as you are happy. You need a source of joy that does not change an eternal perspective that comes only from knowing Jesus. 
It is both simple and true. When Jesus is first in your life, you can have joy that goes beyond your circumstances. If you know Jesus, you have discovered the central reality of the universe. Build your life on him, and you will never be disappointed. Let's pray. Father, you know what you are doing in our lives, even when we don't see it and we don't fully understand it. We pray to discover the joy that comes from a living relationship with Jesus. Help us to be patient as you complete the unfinished work of making us like your son. In Jesus' name, amen. And until next time, friends, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion.